well, thanks very much for those readings and um, good morning again. I'll ask you please to open a Bible, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, also inside your leaflet you'll find um, an outline of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, it'll be handy to have that in front of you. It'll help make sense of what is a fairly complicated and dense passage. Uh, and also a couple of other Bible references are in there that I'm going to refer to and be useful to have those in front of you. Uh, if you look at the outline there, you'll see there's four points on it. I'm going to spend most of my time on points two and three, just so you have a sense of uh, where we're going. Um, as we uh, come to God's, God's Word, let me lead us in prayer, and uh, then we'll see uh, what it has to say to us today. Heavenly Father, thanks for your Word. Thanks that it's been written for us and for our salvation. Uh, we pray this morning as we try and come to terms with uh, what is um, a passage that's full of meaning but hard in application, that you would grant us soft hearts uh, a desire to live in a way that's pleasing to you, but above all, you'd enable us to overflow in thankfulness to you for all that you've done for us. Amen. Uh, well, um, as I said, it's lovely to be here again. Uh, I hadn't thought it would be this soon that we'd have a chance to be back here uh, amongst you here in Robertson. Um, and uh, obviously, you're in the middle of a series working your way through 1 Corinthians. And I really want to start by saying thanks very much, Graham, for this passage. Uh, you know. Yes, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how you feel uh, or what your reaction is to what you've just heard read. Um, it strikes me that there's a whole bunch of things in that passage that are pretty out there. So, for example, Paul says, if you're having trouble controlling yourself in terms of uh, sexuality, Paul says, just get married. On the other hand, he says, if you want to get married, it's actually good not to get married, which sounds kind of insensitive to those who do want to get married but aren't. And then to top it all off, Paul says to those who are married, well, uh, your body belongs to your spouse. Uh, and in fact, the only reason you're not to have sex, that's what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7, the only reason you're not to have sex, in, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, is because you're going to the church prayer meeting. Now, obviously Paul never had kids uh, or a mortgage or in-laws visiting. Uh, so, you know, you, you read this passage... And you think, sorry if your in-laws are here with you today. Uh, <laughs> you think, this passage, it's, it seems pretty out there compared to where we are today and to our situation. Let me say from the outset, my aim this morning is uh, fairly modest. I want to persuade you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, from verses 1 through 24, I want to persuade you that God is good. I want to persuade you that God is good and that he gives good gifts to everyone. And the reason why I want to do that is because, well, obviously I think that's what the passage is about, but in particular, I don't know everyone's circumstances here. Uh, clearly that's obvious. I don't know your situation. And therefore it's hard, in a sense, to be able to speak in a way that will necessarily connect with each person's own life and own context. Uh, but that's okay. It's okay because this morning what we're doing is we're listening not to what I have to say, but we're listening to God's word. And God is good. And his word testifies to his goodness to us. Okay, so that's my goal this morning, uh, to persuade you that from this passage, God is good and that he gives good gifts to everyone. Uh, and as you can see on the outline, there's four parts to the talk. Uh, and as I said, I'll spend most of my time on points two and three. Let's start with point one. It's good not to marry. Look with me again at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man 
not to marry. What's going on? Well, Paul is probably quoting the Corinthians back something that they have written to him. Uh, It seems that the Corinthians have said to Paul something to the effect of, well, it's good not to marry, isn't it? And Paul is agreeing with them. Now, why would the Corinthians say such a thing? Well, uh, probably what's going on is that uh, the Corinthian Christians, uh, given their context, uh, they thought that they were, in some sense, super spiritual if they abstained from sex. Uh, I talked about this last time, some of you might recall this. Uh, The Corinthian, uh, the city of Corinth in particular, was notorious for its sexual immorality. It was known throughout uh, the ancient world as being a place of extraordinary promiscuity, uh, so much so that, in fact, the Greek word for sexual immorality, one of the Greek words for sexual immorality, was Corinthizomai. That is, if you lived in Corinth, you were known to be someone who was sexually promiscuous. And so the Christians, uh, the Corinthians, when they became Christians, some of them, it seems, thought, well, perhaps what we ought to do is we ought to abstain from sex, uh, almost as a way of showing our purity or our super-spirituality. And uh, if you need any persuading as to that might be the reason why they would say such a thing as it's good for a person not to marry, uh, just recall what you've seen in the last few weeks. Remember back in chapter 5? There you had that situation of a man sleeping with his stepmother. And then in chapter 6, you saw how the Corinthians would continue to visit temple prostitutes. In that situation, I think it's not hard to imagine that some of the the newly converted Christians in Corinth, they might have lurched to the opposite extreme, as if to say that perhaps we ought to avoid sex entirely. Uh, In fact, it seems, some of the Corinthians thought that even the married people should abstain from sex, Uh, And we'll see Paul's response to that in this passage. Uh, But if that sounds a bit far-fetched, well, uh, in the end, that's the reason why, there's a bunch of reasons, but that's the primary reason why the Roman Catholic Church is against sex for clergy. Because in some way, it's constructed this view that it's less spiritual. And so, Paul begins in chapter 7, verse 1, yes, It's good not to marry. But let's be very clear about what he can't be saying. Paul can't be saying, therefore, that marriage is a bad thing. Uh, You know that for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, elsewhere, he's very positive about marriage. So if you have a look there at 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, I've printed it there for in your handout. Uh, Here he's talking about people who have actually lurched away from the gospel, who've descended into heresy. And he says in chapter 1, verse Chapter 4, verse 3 in 1 Timothy, uh, these people, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created, including marriage, is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So Paul can't be against marriage. In fact, if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, drop down to verse 7, Paul will say in verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, that is, unmarried, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What Paul is saying here is, in fact, that every person has been gifted by God, either in marriage or not. So what is Paul saying then in verse 1, when he says it's good for a man not to marry? 
I think what Paul is doing is he's reminding us that marriage is not to be the be-all and end-all of our existence. It is not to be the thing to which we aspire to more than anything else in this life. It is a good gift, but it's not the only gift of God's. And if it's a gift that's granted to you, Paul is going to go on to say it needs to be used well and properly. He's going to return to this idea of actually choosing to remain unmarried later in the passage. In fact, in verse 25 onwards. Uh, and he's going to extol the benefits, in fact, of never marrying, which again sounds pretty countercultural in our society. Uh, but I simply say about verse 25 onwards, good luck, Graham. You can deal with that next week. <laughs> okay, so that's the opening statement. It is good not to marry... So let's go on and then say point two, how God gives good gifts to everyone. God gives good gifts to everyone. Let me read again verses two through seven uh, and then say a few things about it. Verse two, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Don't deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has, the, has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Okay, the problem, verse 2, is that there is so much immorality. Now, the word here for immorality is the one you actually saw last week in chapter 6. It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word today in pornography. Uh, the word immorality here uh, is simply a blanket term for any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And so some of the things that the Bible will refer to as specific examples of immorality will include adultery, prostitution, sex with a close-blood relative, same-sex attraction, and of course horrific things like rape. Paul says, because there is so much immorality, his advice is not actually abstinence, his advice is proper expression within heterosexual marriage. And we're going to return later to what Paul says to those who want to get married but are not and to what they ought to do. But first, Paul focuses on those who are married and how they're to deal with all the immorality around them. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul explains why marriage is such a profound and intimate solution to all of this immorality. He says there, your body belongs to your spouse. Your body belongs to your spouse. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is the first Bible reading that we had today from Genesis 2, it's because the two have become one. They are no longer separate. They are joined together. Uh, that's the reason why last week in chapter 6, uh, you saw that sexual sins are against your own body and your body belongs to your spouse. Those two ideas are connected together. Paul is saying that spouses, husbands and wives, are so bonded that they belong to each other. And therefore, 
they must give up their own individual preferences and their own individual desires to serve the other person. Now, one of the things that I uh, do is I work with university students, as you've heard, and uh, university students are often at a stage of life where they get married. In fact, one of our students just texted me this morning saying she got engaged yesterday, uh, which is lovely to um, you know, a good Christian boy. Uh, when we do marriage prep with uh, the couples that uh, we're preparing for marriage, uh, normally the first question we ask them is, so why do you want to get married? And generally, they sort of fumble away with a few sort of answers at that point. I mean, it's kind of a direct question, isn't it? Why do you want to get married? Normally, they come up with something like, oh, we really love each other. And, you know, that, I'm, sorry, I'm not being rude. That's a good thing. I'm glad that they do. But I've yet to hear a single engaged person say, the reason I want to get married is so that I can serve the other person. Now, I know that that's true, but that's not the first thing that springs to mind. Paul is saying here that husbands and wives so belong to each other that they are to put their spouses' desires and preferences before their own. And that means, of course, that there is no justification ever for husbands ignoring their wives' preferences to satisfy their own desires or vice versa. That's one way that is not mutual or two-way. And in fact, the particular illustration that Paul will give here in verses 3 and 4, where he talks about a marital duty, it's a polite way of saying, basically, that because husband and wife are to be bond, are bonded together, uh, they are to be sexually intimate with each other. And Paul will say that's so important that the only reason, verse 5, they're to deprive each other is when they would prefer to spend time praying. And even then, only for a time. Now, for those who are married, perhaps you can understand and empathise them with why Paul would say unmarriage is in many ways simpler and less complicated. Sadly, I suspect uh, to pray is not the reason why most Christian spouses end up depriving each other. Now, let me say here at this point, and again, I don't know of anyone's circumstances or situation, but I understand that this passage here has been abused and misused by some spouses who have pressured their, their partners into sex. It's misuse and it's an abuse. It's clearly not what Paul has in mind. What Paul is saying here is that the only thing that's more important in your relationship with each other is your relationship with God. That is the only reason why you might not have sex is because you're praying. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us, don't follow the world's lead, which idolizes marriage as being the greatest goal. Let me say very briefly then, practically, to those amongst us who are married, Paul is urging us to ensure that sexual intimacy is an integral part of your marriage. Now, I understand that, of course, that to those who aren't married, uh, that might sound like a strange thing to say. Uh, let me say that it's harder than you think. Uh, not to cry poor, of course, but sex is really straightforward. And, uh, again, this is obvious, it's 
rarely spontaneously earth-shattering like in the movies. Uh, it's interesting, actually. Uh, my wife and I, as you know, we're involved in marriage ministry in our church. We're running a marriage enrichment night in a few weeks. Uh, the topic that we're running it on this time is on sex and intimacy. This may or may not surprise you, but this looks like we'll have the biggest turnout ever at one of our marriage enrichment nights. What Paul is urging those who are married is to look to find common agreement about mutual satisfaction. Now, even if that's not your first choice. Actually, do you know what that's called? That's called compromise. Uh, and if you don't know what that word is in your marriage, uh, you've got some bigger problems. What does Paul have to say to those who aren't married? Well, in verses 2 to 5, he said that uh, for those who are married, marriage is a gift from God and sexual intimacy is an important part of that. In verses 6 and 7, he turns to the unmarried what he says here is really radical. Have a look at verse 6. Uh, Paul says, I say all this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul picks up that idea from verse 1 where he agreed it is good for a man not to marry. What he actually says is that marriage, therefore, is a concession... It's a concession because God also gives, wait for it, God also gives the gift of unmarriage. And at least in Paul's mind, he thinks that's a better gift. Now, at this point, you're going, whoa, hold on. Did Jeff really just say that? Did Jeff really just say that unmarriage is a better gift than marriage? Because for those of us who aren't married particularly for those of us who long to be married, it certainly doesn't feel like God has given me a better gift than those who are married. Think for a moment about our culture, the air that we breathe. In 21st century Australia, everything that we see, our movies, reality TV shows, they're all about farmers wanting wives or bachelorettes seeking true love, true love lasting forever. I don't know of many little girls who dream of growing up and not getting married. So to call unmarriage, to call unmarriage a gift from God and a better one than that, well, to be perfectly honest, it seems awfully like desperately trying to convince yourself that the dud prize you drew out of the lucky dip is better for you when in fact what you want more than anything else is, is to be able to exchange it for something else. So, if that's what you're thinking, and I understand that, you're probably thinking, Jeff, you're going to have to work pretty hard to persuade me that unmarriage is a good gift from God. One of the things I'd like to say to you is, come back next week, and you can have Graham persuade you, because that's where the passage is going to go. <laughs> but for now... What I would like to point out is that although marriage can be wonderfully intimate, it is also very hard and complicated. And again, without crying poor, as someone who is very happily married, if the hardest thing about singleness is loneliness, I would like to gently observe that being in a loveless marriage 
or worse, being in a marriage which dissolves, uh, that's pretty painful too. What Paul is doing here is that he's urging us to believe, even against our own initial reaction, Paul is urging us to believe that whether or not we are married, verse 7, never think that God is shortchanging you. Never think that God is ripping anyone off. Because verse 7, each person has their own gift from God. So can you see there, who misses out on good gifts from God in verse 7? Who misses out in verse 7? No one. Who is most likely to think that God has overlooked them? Well, Paul is saying, not even the unmarried person. Uh, Even though the world around might scream, you're alone, so therefore you must be lonely. Understand this is hard. It is hard sometimes to think that God's gifts are good, even when they don't seem that way. But in the same way, I suppose that it's incumbent on those who are older to train those who are younger. I'm thinking particularly of parents with children here. In some ways, as we must teach those who are younger when they get a present that they don't necessarily think they like, but nevertheless that it is good for them. So God's word reminds us that what God gives to us is good, even if we can't see it at first. Okay, let me move on to point three then and see how Paul fleshes that out more broadly and applies that principle of God's goodness uh, in three different circumstances. And this is verses 8 through 16, which I've headed, God blesses entire households. God blesses entire households. And what he does in verses 8 through 16 is that he addresses three types of people, three particular situations, the unmarried and the widows, the married, and then the rest. That's what he calls them. Let me just say something about each of those to help make sense of this. Uh, To the unmarried and the widows, verses 8 and 9, look at the passage. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is basically recapping what he said earlier, saying that the only appropriate place for sexual activity is in heterosexual marriage, and therefore, to those who aren't married, uh, if they can't control themselves, marriage is the right expression not any other context or any other relationship. Verses 10 and 11, he then addresses the married, those who are married at Corinth in the church. Let me read this section. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And likewise, a husband must not divorce his wife. Let me say two things about um, these verses, uh, mostly because they've created lots of confusion, I think, for people. Uh, The first thing is that when Paul says, uh, notice there, I, not the Lord, when Paul says, uh, sorry, not I, but the Lord, um, he's not trying to say that what comes next is more weighty, uh, just because Jesus said it, as opposed to Paul. That's not what he's saying, and if you've ever heard that, please, I encourage you, don't think that way. Paul is not trying to imply that certain parts of the Bible are more important than others. Uh, You know from 2 Timothy 3, he will say, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Rather, I think all that Paul is doing is he is stating a fact. Here's the fact. Jesus talked about this issue. 
And that's in contrast to uh, the next section in verse 12 where he'll say to the rest, I not the Lord. Um, I think what he's saying is Jesus didn't address that issue and that's why Paul's had to say something about it. Okay, so don't overread this passage and say that because Jesus said it's therefore more important and this is the point at which if Graham's never done this, I'll do this for you. I'll have the slight rant about Bibles that put Jesus' words in red. Uh, they're not helpful in any way. Jesus' words are not more important than any other words in the Bible. It's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Okay, So that's a bit of an aside, but I think this has often confused people, so I wanted to say something about that. But here's the second thing. Uh, what Paul is doing here is that he's saying to marrieds uh, that marriage is so significant that it creates a bond that ought not be broken. The reason for that is because Amongst other reasons, if that bond is broken, it always affects others. It affects whole households. And I think intuitively, we grasp the strength of the bond between husband and wife, and we understand how much others are affected because, sadly, when it does fall apart, you see how everyone else gets sucked into the vortex. What Paul is saying here is that Christian marriage ought not end in divorce only with death. The third group that Paul addresses, verses 12 through 16, he calls the rest. Let me read out these verses and then say something about this. Verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, uh, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Uh, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Okay, so in this situation, Paul is describing what you might say mix, uh, mixed marriages. That is, where one of either the husband or wife is Christian and the other is not. Uh, probably what's happened, I think, is that two unbelievers who are married have been converted. One of them has been converted. So I don't think it's the case of where someone who was a Christian has gone on to marry an unbeliever. Um, I think that because... Remember back in, uh, well, actually, you'll see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is very strong on encouraging Christians not to marry unbelievers. So I think probably what's happened is two unbelievers who are married, one of them gets converted. And now you've got a complication, don't you? This is what Paul is speaking about in this situation. Let me deal with the easier situation first. Uh, the easier situation, uh, sorry, not, not less painful, but easier to understand. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him go. That's verses 15 and 16. If the unbeliever wants out of the marriage, and again, you can imagine that situation where that happens. Uh, they were married. One has become a believer. The believer now wants to live life in a very different way, and the unbeliever just isn't interested in that anymore and says, okay, I want a divorce. Paul says, well, let them go. You can't stop them. Uh, let me say, as an aside... I don't think Paul, therefore, is providing a general exception for divorce. Um, I say that because of what he's just said in verses 10 and 11. 
Rather, I think it's just a statement of fact. Again, you can't force anyone to stay in a marriage, and if the unbeliever wants to walk away, you can't pretend as if you're still married. Uh, Interestingly, Paul doesn't say whether or not the Christian who has been left is entitled to remarry. He doesn't address that situation here. Uh, Although I think given the possibility of divorce uh, and given what Jesus says about the possibility of remarriage in Matthew 6 and Matthew 19, listen to what I'm about to say, I think remarriage is not necessarily ruled out. Do you hear my caution in what I'm saying there? I don't think it's straightforward, but I don't think remarriage is impossible for, an unbelie- for a believer in this situation. But there's a lot more that you could say about that, and if you have questions, uh, go and talk to Graham. Uh, let me deal with the harder situation. This is verses 13 and 14. Have you ever looked there in verses 13 and 14? If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. What Paul is saying here is that if the unbeliever, so remember the situation, two non-Christians who are married, one has become a believer, the other, for whatever reason, doesn't want to divorce, Paul is saying neither is the believer entitled to divorce the unbeliever. The reason he gives is very profound. Did you notice there? Verse 14, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and their children have been made holy or sanctified. Same word again. Now, what on earth does this mean? Does this mean that a Christian who's married to a non-Christian in effect saves their unbelieving spouse? Uh, It's not entirely clear. But this much is clear, I think. Just as we saw how adultery and divorce harms others, I think what Paul is saying is that marriage is a blessing for those around us. That is, God's goodness and generosity extends beyond the immediate recipients or as I've titled this section God blesses entire households as I said it's not entirely clear what this passage is saying I don't think it means that the unbeliever therefore is saved because if they've never turned to Christ and have no intention to it actually wouldn't be appropriate but in some way they have been blessed by being joined to as one with someone who has been saved and even more so their children and I think you see a reference to that in Deuteronomy 5 which I've printed there for you on your handout now, this is where Moses is recording the Ten Commandments the fourth commandment you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Uh, one of the principles I think the Bible is very clear on is that we have individual responsibility, but there are collective consequences to our actions. And so what Moses is doing, I think, here when he writes, records the Ten Commandments, he's saying that those who sin, actually their sin affects others. But those whom God blesses, his blessing is even greater to a thousand generations, not just three or four. And I thought I'd tell you a story that I think, for me, has brought this home um, as I've thought about it uh, from my own life. Um, I became a Christian uh, at the youth group that Graham and I went to uh, in middle high school. Uh, but the, the story of how I got to that youth group is the part that I think illustrates the point on view here in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, clearly, I'm Chinese. You might have noticed that. Uh, my, uh, my great-great-grandmother, uh, who lived in China... Uh, was converted in around about 1860 when missionaries from England, uh, I've often wondered if it was Hudson Taylor, in fact, but I don't think that's the case, although I like to think that because that sounds you know, like three degrees of separation or something, uh, came to their village in southern China. Uh, she became a believer. Uh, her son, my great-grandfather, went on to become a Presbyterian minister, actually, in China at the turn of the 20th century. His son, my grandfather, uh, actually wanted to follow my great-grandfather into the ministry, but for a bunch of reasons wasn't able to, but was a faithful man who lived until he was 93, loving the Lord Jesus and serving him. Uh, his son, my father, uh, at the time in which they emigrated to Australia, um, uh, by that point, actually, my father, I don't actually think, was Christian. Uh, but I think God's blessing to my grandfather great-grandfather and great-grandmother was such that when my father came to Australia, one of the things that he used to do was send me to Sunday school. I actually remember growing up, uh, my parents wouldn't go to church, but they'd drop me and my sister off at the local Anglican church every Sunday morning. I never quite understood why I had to go and they were allowed not to. But each week we went, and thanks to the very faithful teaching of the Sunday school teachers, can I just say how thankful to God I am for Sunday school teachers? They are incredibly patient and gracious. The stuff they put up with from people like me over many years. But they taught me the gospel. Uh, and in due course, uh, I came to know the Lord Jesus as my saviour. I look back, and now I can see with a clarity that I didn't have at the time, God's blessing to a thousand generations of those who love him. My prayer is actually that it will be the same, not just for my children, but for those who come after me. I think what 1 Corinthians 7 does, amongst all the complicated things that we hear here, it reminds us of God's blessing, of how good he is. And sometimes we can't see it, and our circumstances and our situation blind us to it. But God's word is clear. It opens our eyes and it cuts through. And it reminds us that he is good and he gives good gifts to everyone. And in a moment, we're going to finish appropriately by thanking him. Point four on your handout, I'm not going to say anything about that other than uh, to observe that, again, Paul is demonstrating God's goodness, of, God's goodness to us. Uh, here in this last bit, his language is about God's call. Uh, you will have heard that in verses 17 through 24. The word calling came up over and over again. 
Uh, and each time, Paul's argument is that God's call is just right for each one of us. Uh, so, for example, verse 24. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. So just as we've seen that God gives good gifts to us all and that God blesses whole households, Paul's conclusion is urging us not to be discontented. Whatever your situation, however hard and painful it is, the reason is because God has called you to that. Now, he'll even use the extreme example of a Christian slave and say God has called a Christian slave to be a slave. And that's pretty hard to hear, isn't it? And yet Paul can still say to that slave, God is not shortchanging you. He's called you to that. By all means, look to change your circumstance if you can. But don't do so because you're discontented or think that God is ripping you off. That's hard for us to hear, isn't it? Uh, we live in a time and a place where everything about our world promotes envy. The sense that you are missing out, that others have it better than you. For us who live by the word of God, our outlook is to be very different. Our God has called us to our situation. He gives good gifts. And the right prayer for us to pray as we finish is that God might help us to see that with clarity, even when at times we don't feel it. So let me do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us and tells us of what you are like and how we might live in your world. But above all, thank you for the reminder this morning that you are good, that your love endures forever, and that even when our circumstances seem hard, painfully so, nevertheless, you love us, and that your love is to a thousand generations of those who love you. Amen.